Hi, I'd like to welcome you to the Austrian Circle. This is the program where we talk about the economics of freedom here on WHUS Stores 91.7 FM. So thank you for tuning into my show this morning. We are going to be talking about profit on the show today. Profit has become the new curse word. This is the thing that tells us that somebody is up to no good if they're interested in accumulating a profit. I'd like to speak on the show today about the social benefits of profit and why, in the economy, we benefit immensely from those who seek profit. Now, everybody wants to talk about profit as if it exists in some sort of vacuum where there is no corollary to it called loss. Profit and loss are inexorably tied to each other. There's no way to separate these two things. You can't profit without having to worry about loss. And profit and loss are extended not just to the business world, but in terms of all action. Every single action that human beings take necessarily involves profit and loss. It's kind of built into the um, idea of human action, which Mises elaborated in his book, Human Action. Um, For instance, all action takes a certain amount of time. This could be a millisecond. This could be, you know, hours of time. However, every single action that human beings take takes a certain amount of time. In the same way, profit and loss are tied to human action because all actors who aim at some kind of goal, some kind of end um, to get their preferences met, they have an expectation of the outcome of that situation. So let's take an example of this. Let's say that I have a book that's on a very high shelf and I can't quite reach it. So I have to get a ladder and I have to bring the ladder over to the bookshelf. I have to climb up the ladder and I have to go and reach for the book. So my expected outcome is that everything works well. The ladder works. Uh, I climb up the ladder. I get the book and I retrieve it into my possession, which is my ultimate goal in this particular case. Now, that would be profitable uh, because the time spent in um, bringing the ladder over to the bookcase, um, all the investment of me climbing up the ladder and all of that stuff would have paid off because my preferences were met. Now, loss would occur if I aimed at getting the book off the shelf, but I failed miserably. Maybe the ladder was not constructed very well and it fell apart as I tried to climb up it. Or perhaps I fell off the ladder. Or perhaps the ladder was not long enough in order to reach the book that I was aiming at. In which case, all of these situations would involve a psychic loss, which is the opposite of a psychic profit. Now, entrepreneurs who are aiming at a profit while running a business, which means that they are taking more money in than the cost of running that business um, necessarily entails, which means, you know, hiring labor, building or buying capital goods, um, uh, the time spent in all of the accounting and all of the things that are necessary to run the business. The entrepreneur believes that it will be Uh, more money coming in than the costs involved. Now, of course, as we learned in our last example, the ends that we aim at may not always be achieved. Um, When an entrepreneur is aiming at profit, he could end up with a loss, which means that customers do not want to purchase that product at the price that's being offered for that product, and therefore that entrepreneur finds out that the costs involved with 
building and uh, constructing that business are not in line with the customer's preferences. So we can't just talk about profit in a bubble as if you just profit automatically because you run a business. Your business has to be in accordance with what other people want at the price that other people want. So I'd like to read something uh, to you by Hans Hermann Hoppe. And uh, he's going to talk about the ethics of entrepreneurship and profit and why profit is actually ethical. It's something that we should strive for and aim for in society because it really tells us uh, what kind of things that people want in the world and how we should invest the scarce resources that we have available to us to meet the highest uh, and most preferential demands that people have. In the most fundamental sense, we are all, with each of our actions, always and invariably profit-seeking entrepreneurs. Whenever we act, we employ some physical means, uh, things valued as goods, at a minimum our body and its standing room, but in most cases also various other external things, so as to divert the natural course of events, which is the course of events we expect to happen if we were to act differently in order to reach some more highly valued, anticipated future state of affairs instead. With every action, we aim at substituting a more favorable future state of affairs for a less favorable one that would result if we were to act differently. In this sense, with every action, we seek to increase our satisfaction and attain a psychic profit. Quote, to make profits is invariably the aim sought by any action, as Ludwig von Mises has stated it. But every action is threatened also with the possibility of loss, for every action refers to the future, and the future is uncertain or at best only partially known. Every actor in deciding on a course of action compares the value of two anticipated states of affairs the state he wants to affect through his action, but that has not yet been realized, and another state that would result if he were to act differently, but cannot come into existence because he acts the way he does. This makes every action a risky enterprise. An actor can always fail and suffer a loss. He may not be able to affect the anticipated future state of affairs. That is, the actor's technical knowledge, his know-how, may be deficient or it may be temporarily superseded due to some unforeseen external contingencies. Or else, even if he has successfully produced the desired state of physical affairs, he may still consider his action a failure and suffer a loss. If this state of affairs provides him with less satisfaction than what he could have attained had he have chosen otherwise. That is, the actor's speculative knowledge, his knowledge of the temporal change and fluctuation of values and valuations, may be deficient. Since all of our actions display entrepreneurship and are aimed at being successful and yielding the actor a profit, there can be nothing wrong with entrepreneurship and profit. Wrong in any meaningful sense of the term are only failure and loss, and accordingly in all of our actions, we try to avoid them. 
The question of justice, i.e. whether or not a specific action and the profit or loss resulting from it is ethically right or wrong, arises only in connection with conflicts. Since every action requires the employment of specific physical means, a body, standing room, external objects, a conflict between different actors must arise whenever two actors try to use the same physical means for the attainment of different purposes. The source of conflict is always and invariably the same, the scarcity of physical means. Two actors cannot at the same time use the same physical means, the same bodies, spaces, and objects for alternative purposes. If they try to do so, they must clash. Therefore, in order to avoid conflict or resolve it if it occurs, an actionable principle and criterion of justice is required, i.e., a principle regulating the just or proper versus the unjust or improper use and control or ownership of scarce physical means. Logically, what is required to avoid all conflict is clear. It is only necessary that every good be always and at all times owned privately, i.e. controlled exclusively by some specified individual or individual partnership or association, and that it be always recognizable which good is owned and by whom, and which is not. The plans and purpose of various profit-seeking actor entrepreneurs may then be as different as can be. And yet no conflict will arise so long as their respective actions involve only and exclusively the use of their own private property. Just property, then, goes back directly or indirectly through a chain of mutually beneficial and thus likewise conflict-free property title transfers to original appropriators and acts of original appropriation. Mutatus mutandis, all claims to and uses made of things by a person who had neither appropriated or produced these things nor acquired them through a conflict-free exchange from some previous owner, are unjust. And by implication, all profits gained or losses suffered by an actor entrepreneur with justly acquired means are just profits or losses, and all profits and losses accruing to him through the use of unjustly acquired means are unjust. This analysis applies in full also to the cases of the entrepreneur in the term's narrower definition as a capitalist entrepreneur. The capitalist entrepreneur acts with a specific goal in mind to attain a monetary profit. He saves or borrows saved money, he hires labor, and he buys or rents raw materials, capital goods, and land. He then proceeds to produce his product or service, whatever it may be, and he hopes to sell this product for a monetary profit. For the capitalist, quote, profit appears as a surplus of money received over money expended and loss as a surplus of money expended over money received profit and loss can be expressed in definite amounts of money. As with all action, a capitalist enterprise is risky. The cost of production, the money expended, does not determine the revenue received. In fact, if the cost of production determined price and revenue, no capitalist would ever fail. 
Rather, it is anticipated prices and revenues that determine what production costs the capitalist can possibly afford. Yet the capitalist does not know what future prices will be paid or what quantity of its product will be bought at such prices. This depends exclusively on the buyers of his product, and the capitalist has no control over them. The capitalist must speculate what the future demand will be. If he is correct and the expected future prices do correspond to the later fixed market prices, he will earn a profit. On the other hand, while no capitalist aims at making losses, because losses imply that he must ultimately give up his function as a capitalist and become either a hired employee or another capitalist or a self-sufficient producer-consumer, every capitalist can err with his speculation, and the actually realized prices fall below his expectations and his accordingly assumed production cost in which case he does not earn a profit, but incurs a loss. While it is possible to determine exactly how much money a capitalist has gained or lost in the course of time, his money profit or loss do not imply much, if anything, about the capitalist's state of happiness, i.e. about his psychic profit or loss. For the capitalist, money is rarely, if ever, the ultimate goal, save maybe for Scrooge McDuck, and only under a gold standard. In practically all cases, money is a means to further action, motivated by still more distant and ultimate goals. The capitalist may want to use it to continue or expand his role as a profit-seeking capitalist. He may use it as cash to be held for a not-yet-determined future employment. He may want to spend it on consumer goods or personal consumption, or he may wish to use it for philanthropic or charitable causes, etc. What can be unambiguously stated about a capitalist's profit or loss is this. His profit or loss are the quantitative expression of the size of his contribution to the well-being of his fellow men i.e. the buyers and consumers of his product, who have surrendered their money in exchange for his more va highly valued product. The capitalist profit indicates that he has successfully transformed socially less highly valued means of action into socially more highly valued means of action, and thus increased and enhanced social welfare. Mutatis mutandis, the capitalist's loss indicates that he has used some more valuable inputs for the production of a less valuable output, and so wasted scarce physical means and impoverished society. Money profits are not just good for the capitalist, then. They are also good for his fellow men. The higher a capitalist profit, the greater has been his contribution to social welfare. Likewise, money losses are bad not only for the capitalists, but they are bad also for his fellow men, whose welfare has been impaired by his error. The question of justice, of the ethically right or wrong actions of a capitalist entrepreneur arises, as in the case of all actions, again only in connection with conflicts, i.e. with rivalrous ownership claims and disputes regarding specific physical means of action. And the answer for the capitalist here is the same as for everyone, in any one of his actions. The capitalist's actions and profits are just if 
he has originally appropriated or produced his production factors, or he has acquired them, either bought or rented them, in a mutually beneficial exchange from a previous owner. If all his employees are hired freely at mutually agreeable terms, and if he does not physically damage the property of others in the production process. Otherwise, if some or all of the capitalist production factors are neither appropriated or produced by him nor bought or rented by him from a previous owner, if he employs non-consensual slave labor in his production, or if he causes physical damage to others, people's property during his production, his actions and resulting profits are unjust. In that case, the unjustly harmed person, the slave, or any person in possession of proof of his unrelinquished older title to some or all of the capitalist means of production, has a just claim against him and can insist on restitution exactly as the matter would be judged and handled outside the business world in all civil affairs. That article was by Hans Hermann Hoppe. It's called The Ethics of Entrepreneurship and Profit. You can read it online at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. He then goes on in the article to outline some of the problems that come about uh, in terms of justice when we have a state uh, intervening on behalf of entrepreneurs. Some of the ways that entrepreneurs use the state is to hobble their competition by attacking them with laws and things like that to drive them out of the market so that they can have a monopoly. Um, they also use the state to get direct subsidies, um, sometimes called bailouts, to from the government to those businesses. Uh, which obviously gives them an advantage over other companies who are competing with them or would have otherwise come into the market to compete with them. And so we as libertarians obviously find this behavior unjust in the same way that we would find entrepreneurs who use guns to stick up their uh, competitors and drive them out of the market as unjust. So the next article I'd like to read is by Doug French. It's called Profits Are Socially Responsible. Back in 1997, Gregory Bresinger signed a piece for the free market tearing apart the notion of socially responsible investing. Managers focused on social issues instead of profits will perform poorly as resources are diverted to unproductive uses. Bresinger looked to close the argument with this seemingly absurd proposition, quote, but SRI funds do point the way to solving a myriad of political debates in this country. Whenever a politician suggests a new tax, mandate, or regulation on business, let's first try it out on one of these socially responsible companies, purely on a voluntary basis. Let it pay higher taxes, insurance premiums, and wages, while adopting ever more rigid quotas and union rules. Then we can watch what happens to its stock price relative to everyone else. Any takers? More than a decade later, there are takers. The Wall Street Journal reports that in seven states, companies can register as benefit corporations, allowing the firms to pursue social and environmental goals without the worry of shareholders suing them for not maximizing shareholder value. These corporate charters aren't tax-exempt or non-profit. Companies choosing to be benefit corporations pay Uncle Sam like any other for-profit company, but have the prerogative to make profits an afterthought. 
Casey Sheehan, chief executive of outdoor apparel company Patagonia, changed his company's charter right away, believing that his company's shareholder values should take a back seat to the common good. Jeff Furman, a Ben & Jerry's director since the 1980s and its current chairman, told the Wall Street Journal that had the socially conscious ice cream maker been a benefit corporation back in 2000, they would never have sold out to Unilever PLC. Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfeld are the stuff of legend for turning an initial $12,000 investment in an ice cream store located in a renovated gas station into an ice cream juggernaut the two sold 22 years later for over $300 million. In addition to the cash price, Cohen and Greenfeld negotiated to have the Netherlands conglomerate commit 7.5% of Ben & Jerry's profits to a foundation, agree not to reduce jobs or alter the way the ice cream is made, and also contribute $5 million to the Ben & Jerry's foundation, along with creating a $5 million fund for, uh, to help minority-owned businesses and others in poor neighborhoods, and distribute $5 million to employees six months after the merger. Surely, Unilever would have paid an even higher cash price without all the socially responsible stipulations which Unilever must have factored into its bid. As it is, based on Furman's comments, the Ben & Jerry's folks still harbor seller's remorse. The law required benefit corporations to spell out company social and environmental goals each year in a benefit report and then measure progress toward those goals. Of course, progress toward goals that are impossible to quantify will be impossible to evaluate, providing a convenient cover for underperforming management. Shareholders will have no real basis to judge management who, by choosing this type of charter, are saying, we don't care about financial profits, we want to make the world a better place. However, while a business owner may make grand pronouncements that the environment or some social issue is more important than profits, what he or she is really saying is that the company believes these issues are more important than customers. It is customers who are in command of the profit and loss system. Producers who don't serve the buying public best suffer losses and are replaced by those who do. Ludwig von Mises explained that it is the urgent demands of customers that dictate the adjustment of production activities. These adjustments relentlessly continue, driven not by the ideology of the entrepreneur or the opinions of management, but by the customer. As Mises explains in Profit and Loss, quote, Profit and loss are ever-present features only on account of the fact that ceaseless change in the economic data makes again and again new discrepancies, and consequently, the need for new adjustment originates. The idea at the root of benefit corporations is that profit should be abolished, but the results of that would be disastrous. Mises points out that if profits were given to the customers, or in other words, if prices could not exceed costs, the maximum price decree would paralyze markets and require goods to be rationed. For the firm's employees to receive profits, no capital could be accumulated to grow the business or innovate production functions. And finally, if the state were to tax 100% of profits, customers would no longer be supreme and producers would just be people who have the power to deal with production as it pleases them. 
Murray Rothbard explained in Man, Economy, and State, the aim of any action is to make gains that exceed costs derived from that action, but that profit and loss in this sense are psychic phenomena, and as such not open to measurement, and a mode of expression which could convey to other people precise information concerning their intensity. For instance, environmentally conscious CEOs can try explaining to shareholders that using more expensive materials or processes to create goods is beneficial to the earth, and thus more worthy than using less environmentally friendly but less expensive materials and earning a higher profit. But the net benefit is impossible to measure. The CEO and board are merely asking shareholders to subsidize their worldview. Rothbard explains that financial profit and loss are expressed in a certain amount of money that determines what individual enterprise made or lost. Quote, However, this is not a statement about social phenomenon, about the individual's contribution to the societal effort as it is appraised by the other members of society. It does not tell us anything about the individual's increase or decrease in satisfaction or happiness. It merely reflects his fellow men's evaluation of his contribution to social cooperation. Mike Brady, the president of Greystone Bakery, a Yonkers, New York supplier of brownies to Ben & Jerry's, claims benefit corporations, quote, add another level of accountability and transparency. But it's hard to understand how directing resources to unprofitable ends at the expense of customers accomplishes this. Mr. Brady's Bakery has 50 full-time employees and hires from its local underprivileged neighborhood. This is fine if these employees are the best employees he can find for wages he's paying. But if they are not, he is wasting capital that could otherwise be used to improve production that could drive down his costs, benefiting his customers with lower prices. A free society cannot survive without entrepreneurial action as well as entrepreneurial profit and loss. Entrepreneurs adopting benefit corporation charters may be well-intentioned, but they should heed the words of Mises. Quote, the elimination of profit, whatever methods may be resorted to for its execution, must transform society into a senseless jumble. It would create poverty for all. That article is by Doug French. It's called Profits Are Socially Responsible. So we talked about profit and loss on the show today, and we showed how profits are immensely beneficial to society. They show us where we should be investing our money, our scarce resources, our time, our labor. They show us what people want, what consumers actually want produced given the myriad uh, different things that we could be producing in the world today. You might have noticed that there's no mud pies or any weird products that nobody likes on the market because uh, simply there's no demand for it. No preferences are in line with the production of mud pies. And so profit shows us what we should be producing. And any attempts to destroy profit or to limit the intake of profit will disrupt the information that we are getting uh, regarding what people want in society. And so the conclusion we can draw is that getting rid of uh, profits would lead to people not knowing what to produce and uh, poverty for all, as Mises said. 
So I hope that you enjoyed this. This has been a presentation of the Austrian Circle here on WHOS Stores 91.7 FM. We'll be back next week with another episode. Have a great week. Take care.